If you have a Bible, you can turn in the Old Testament to Proverbs chapter 4. The reading from God's Word will be from Proverbs chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Lend your attention, this is the very Word of God. Hear, O sons, of father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom, get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of the wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly. She will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Thus far the reading of God's word. Parents wish many things for their children, desiring them to obtain success, good families, good education, competence in many things. Here we see the heart of the Father, the Heavenly Father, desiring that His children receive of His bounty, wisdom, that excellent gift. So when we read that Jesus Christ became for us wisdom, and to us wisdom, we see that the Father has made every way for his children to have wisdom. And join me in prayer as we ask God's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of his word. Almighty God, everlasting Father, you are the giver of every good gift from you, O Father of lights, has come down the choicest gift in the Lord Jesus Christ and even now, that wisdom from above, peaceable, pure, gentle, continues to come from your hand in the Son and by the Spirit. And so we ask that you would build us up in wisdom even now as we turn to your word. As your word goes forth read, as your word is opened in preaching by your wonderful design. Grant to us those gifts which we cannot Give to one another which you alone can give, a growth in faith and hope and love, a growth in wisdom. Beholding the Son, Father, continue to shape us into his image and likeness, for he is most lovely. We ask in Christ's name, amen. We're continuing in the Ten Commandments. Mm. <coughs> As we come to that portion of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, you can note, as I failed to note last week, that each commandment is divided into uh, that which is required and that which is forbidden, uh, the duties enjoined, and uh, that which is uh, forbidden to us. And so we're going to spend a little bit longer in that which is uh, required, the duties uh, which this command sets forth. And so I'll read the verse. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, this is the word of the Lord. 
You shall have no other gods before me. Mm. Thus ends God's word. And then question 45 and 46, which is the first commandment? The first commandment is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And question 46, what is required in the first commandment? The first commandment requireth us to know and acknowledge God to be the only true God and our God and to worship and glorify him accordingly. Amen. So we pick up where we left off last week, asking what this first commandment calls us to and what it means to know and to acknowledge God. What are the particulars that open up to us with this general call to know and to acknowledge God? If you remember, last week we argued that while the title God designates a personal being, the word God also designates a position. A position like husband or father is a a position, but one which uniquely has comprehensive claims upon all that you are and all that you have. And that it is the true and living God who alone is to occupy this position in the hearts and the lives of his people. And additionally, we said that we only know and acknowledge God through faith in Jesus Christ, who came to reveal the Father and now calls us in whole life obedience to follow after him. These are comprehensive claims and are related to this first commandment. So tonight we can ask, what else are we specifically called to in this command to have no other gods? And by way of introduction, I went sledding this week. (laughs) I took Sam and the kids sledding earlier this week. I took a couple of hours off the morning that it snowed, like a picture book. (laughs) We went to a nearby park and we enjoyed the snow. Sledding for an hour, made a giant snowman, snow angels. It was all very pleasant. I was visibly struck in the moment by how good God is as I enjoyed these wonderful gifts, the beauty of the landscape and a family and harmony. I can remember my own father taking me and my brother sledding when we were young in a similar way, some of the richest memories of my life. It's true that Sam could have taken them sledding without me. My brother and I were old enough where we probably could have managed going sledding on our own. And it would have been fun. But it would not have been the same without the father. For the real beauty of those moments was somehow tied to the unique fellowship with the father. Children with the father. Wife with the husband. That that moment so poignantly pressed upon the heart. There are moments of delight that I have in my own father that are rich. I can see the joy on my children's face when I take the time to play with them as their father. And those moments are rich. It's stunning to have these moments, these experiences at our disposal when we consider that our fellowship is with our heavenly father. Now, indeed, our fellowship is with our triune God, The testimony of the Son 
is that he's come to make known the Father. The testimony of the Son is that he has come to bring many sons to glory, sons of the heavenly Father. And this he does by the wonderful working of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps nowhere is this more plainly set forth as we hear the Son teaching children how to pray in the Spirit to our heavenly Father, our Father who art in heaven. He is our Father in the beloved Son, and we are sealed by the ineffable wonder of the Holy Spirit. And so there's moments that we can consider those times of richness with our earthly fathers. They lend a texture and a loveliness to this call in the first commandment to spend time with your heavenly father. And so we can consider that the first commandment calls us to contemplate our God. I use the word contemplate intentionally, meaning something more than think about. <laughs> you might use the word meditate or consider closely, because that's what it means. It means to consider something closely, carefully, slowly, personally, intimately. If you were to receive a love letter from your beloved, you would not skim if in my advanced years I receive a letter from my children, I would not skim it, I assure you. <laughs> I can remember living in Ukraine, getting correspondence from Samantha. There was no scanning of said correspondence. <laughs> there was exegesis of said correspondence. <laughs> there was a careful carrying of each word in my soul. There was a careful considering of good words written to convey to me good things. If you were to sit down to an excellent meal of meat and fine wine, you wouldn't wolf it down like an animal. You would savor it. You'd take it in through the nostrils, enjoy it on the palate intentionally as a choice and excellent gift. These are the images which Scripture itself gives to us as children to consider the excellencies of contemplating our God, considering our God. Psalm 63, 5 through 7. My soul will be satisfied with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. You can hear those images. My soul clings to you, cleaves to you. Like, wait, like, like a man leaves his parents and cleaves to his wife? My soul cleaves to you? You know the experience of rich food, wine, meat? He says, my soul will be satisfied like my body is satisfied with red wine and meat. So my soul is satisfied when I contemplate you. The word he uses here is meditate. It means something like rehearse to oneself. It's like that old Persian king, Artaxerxes, who couldn't sleep. And so he had his servants read to him out of the royal annals. 
And there Mordecai's goodness to him was recollected. We don't have the servants, at least I don't. (laughs) But we can rehearse to ourselves much about our God and the goodness that he has made known in his word, in his son, in his providential dealings with us, in his creation and its bountiful gifts which we continue to enjoy. Snow, sledding, wine, meat. Oh, how good you are. But it is chiefly his word which provides the content of our meditation. Psalm 1, on his instruction, he meditates day and night. But interestingly, notice what David says here, and this is good for us to remember, as we in the OPC can get a bit bookish. (laughs) David doesn't say, I meditate upon your word. He says, I meditate on you. God's word reveals the true and living God. God is not to be mastered. God is master. We are mastered as we truly set him before us. David says, I think upon you. I meditate upon you. I remember you. We approach God's word to know the true and living God. We reflect upon God's world to know the true and living God. We reflect upon the Son to know the true and living God, our Father, our Husband, our Maker, our Redeemer, our Friend. You can notice the interesting time at which this meditation takes place in Psalm 63. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate you in the watches of the night, Here, a sleepless night is seized upon as the occasion to contemplate his God. I'm amazed at how the older I get, the more I find myself awake in the middle of the night. Someone older than me nod if that's a universal experience. Okay, here we go. Everybody gear up. (laughs) A difficulty, yes, but a potential blessing, is it not? You've got nothing to do in the middle of the night. (laughs) There's no demands that are pressing in the middle of the night. There's no work to be done in the middle of the night. You don't always have the leisure that you'd like to direct your full gaze upon the Lord of glory. But if it's a sleepless night, you're granted some unexpected hours of leisure. David says, when I remember you on my bed, when I meditate upon you in the middle of the night, My soul is satisfied. So if you find yourself laying there thinking, I could go for some red wine, set the Lord of glory before your gaze and let your soul drink deeply a very satisfying cup. But even if you find yourself sleeping soundly through the night, the Lord in his goodness has still carved out time for you to gaze upon him fully. Verses 1 and 2 in the same psalm, Psalm 63, reads, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. The longing that David feels at a deeply personal and private level He sees uniquely satisfied in the public assembly of God's people. 
It is there that God's power and glory are uniquely set on display. Something of the fuller measure of the excellencies of Christ are set on display in the company of the redeemed. Sitting beneath the word of God. Receiving uniquely of his bounty and having his goodness pressed upon you in ways that don't come to you in those sleepless nights or those quiet mornings. God summons his people to the public assembly to gaze upon his excellencies, to contemplate his wonders. There's something about the public assembly that's better. It's better than your private worship. It's better than your family worship. For in public worship, God uniquely meets with his people, addressing them through a servant and strengthening them within the chorus of the redeemed. There's something lovely about listening to music at home in your headphones, perhaps on your record player, but it's a different thing altogether to come to the concert hall and listen to the symphony of an orchestra. Mark his goodness to you, Christian. The many lawful calls you have upon your life, not having the full amount of leisure you might like to gaze upon his glory, he gives you one day every week to do just that. He is good. The call to know and acknowledge God is the call to contemplate him in his word and in his world, in private and public worship. Next, to have no other gods calls us to remember our God. We are called to remember our God. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 1. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come, and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Perhaps partly because he's not sleeping anymore later in life. <laughs> Just a guess. <laughs> The verse is instructive for us in a number of ways. In one sense, the good days, the days of full strength and enjoyment ought to give plain witness to God's goodness such that he is known by the fullness of blessing which he gives to nearly everybody. Sound bodies, sound mind, enjoyment of food drink pleasures mark how widespread those choice gifts are and if you don't think they're choice just recall the last time you were sick <laughs> he gives these gifts so widely so frequently and they are so excellent the instruction in ecclesiastes 12 is it's the days of strength wherein you can plainly see the goodness of God, where it is good to remember that these things are from his hand. And he compares this to the great difficulties of the end of life, where a body has trouble staying warm, where motion is with great pain and difficulty, where simple pleasures like meat and drink are not so simple anymore. To have the good years full of the acknowledgement of God makes it that much easier to bring him to remembrance in the days of difficulty. But there's a sense of the word remember from this context that I want to draw out. If we're called to set apart specific times of contemplation, such as those sleepless nights or the public assembly, what about the rest of life? 
What about all those hours not spent in particular contemplation? Most of our hours are spent engaged in daily, mundane, lawful, and good activities. You engage in earthly labors. You work. You make meals. You raise children. You go on vacation, and so on and so forth. Most of your time will not be spent in removed contemplation, and that's by God's design. Things have become confused on this point. Let's remember the Reformation. <laughs> you don't have to be a monk to be a Christian. You don't have to be a monk to be more spiritual. The good gift of vocation was recovered by the Reformation. But it doesn't mean that there's not a fellowship with God that takes place in those mundane times. We can consider marriage for a moment. I trust that as you go about your day, the majority of your time is not spent contemplating the comeliness of your spouse. But I also suspect that you do not forget that you are married. <laughs> in other words, even if you're not actively thinking about your beloved, you remember that you're married. You live as if you are married. Or you can consider the role of the father. The father who neglects his children is sinning. But so is the father who neglects his work to constantly play with his children. <laughs> so then there must be a way to fellowship with our God, even if we are not engaged in direct contemplation of him. And I think that's exactly what Paul instructs us in in Ephesians 6. Bond servants... Render service with a good will as unto the Lord and not to man. Now consider what he's telling him to do there. He's saying, do all the tasks of a servant. Render all those tasks, that portion of attentiveness, concentration, and care that an excellent discharge of those tasks requires. He does not envision a cessation of labors to contemplate the ineffable majesty of Christ. He envisions appropriate attention given to the good tasks at hand, but with a larger consciousness that one labors before and unto the Lord of glory as children standing before a heavenly father. You can think of an athlete whose focus is upon the game and the task at hand. Yet at the same time, there's an awareness at some level of those watching, and somehow this fuels attentiveness to the task. Or you might think of an actor and picture the same lever, levels. I can recall being on the stage in college and lending the substance of my focus to the given scene, but somehow it was infused with an energy by the awareness of this audience. You can consider the growth of a marriage relationship. When you first fall in love, think of how deranged you were. <laughs> you were intoxicated with love. You were making all sorts of bad decisions about how long you were willing to stay up just talking together. But they weren't bad decisions at the time. 
They were part of the design. But it can't go on like that. <laughs> when you first fall in love, you think that the only true expression of love is to spend every waking hour together. But as you mature in love, you realize that there's a constancy and a stability and a dependency that does not take its cue from that level of intoxication. <laughs> now, the danger later in marriage is to spend no hours at all in the full hour, in the full enjoyment of one another. But the other danger is to think that all hours must be spent in those intoxicated hours of enjoyment. The majority of our lives are not spent in active contemplation. We might add the majority of our lives are not spent in the throes of bliss, even in worship. Perhaps the Lord might open up a unique attunement of your heart to the wonders of being able to draw near to him as his children, but I suspect no, I know that the majority of the time our conceptions of what we're engaged in even now fall woefully short of the wonder in which we're participating. The majority of our lives are not spent in active contemplation or in the throes of bliss. In fact, if you are spending hours and hours in removed contemplation, chances are you're sinning by neglecting other responsibilities upon your life. I think husbands and fathers are particularly vulnerable to this sin. And we're doubly vulnerable because usually we convince ourselves it's piety. It's not. Helping your wife, spending time with your children, that's godliness. It stands to reason then that we must learn how to tap into this larger consciousness of our God, which attends us in our mundane activities as we put our hands to all sorts of lawful duties and blessings to which he calls us and which he gives us. And it goes deeper still, doesn't it? Because it's not just that we labor before him, but rather as those who now understand the way of things, we realize that we live and move and have our being in him. And not just that, but the life of faith unfolds as we walk by faith in the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself for us. This is exactly what Paul says. He says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. More and more, our God is attuning our hearts to live in accord with the unseen things. More and more, we are learning to walk in this moment-by-moment -moment faith communion, which empowers the life of God's people day by day as the magnitude of his love and mercy gains greater layers of wonder as his mercies are new, morning by morning. And we see them with the eyes of faith and yield to him the portion of praise. You're called to remember your God. I'm going to consider one more call in this first commandment. It's the call to fear our God. Contemplate, remember, fear. I trust you all have good memories because I only see like three of you writing that down. No, I'm just... <laughs> I'm ambivalent about writing notes. <laughs> we consider 
that the call in the first commandment is the call to fear our God. The call to have no other gods is a call to fear God above all earthly and heavenly powers. Isaiah 8, 13. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Now, providentially, we already considered the particular situation of Isaiah 7 through 9 this morning. Remember, this is Isaiah calling King Ahaz to trust in the Lord, to fear the Lord above all other threats. Remember, Syria and Israel are a very real threat. They're threatening to destroy the house of David. Isaiah 7-2, when the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. They were terrified of Syria. They were terrified of Israel. They were terrified of the coming military threat. They could have destroyed Judah, but what does Isaiah say? Be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. It shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. It was a call to believe that there was no one like the God of David. That there was no one like the God that Isaiah served. And so we see the two strands here at the heart of the fear of the Lord converging into one. The first strand is that he's almighty. He's the maker of heaven and earth. None can stand against him. He made all things. He upholds all things. He directs all things. He tells the sea, that roiling cauldron of unruliness, you can't go any farther than I tell you. He tells Leviathan, that you are but my rubber ducky to steal the words of one well-known Old Testament scholar. He leads him about like a chain, this dragon of chaos. None can stay his hand. None can stay against him. He summons Assyria. He summons Babylon. He summons Persia to do his will. He has defeated the kings of Egypt. He has defeated the kings of the Transjordan. He has defeated the Canaanites and their God. He's almighty. The second strand is, he's your father. He's for you. He loves you. He has bound himself to you for your good. You can trust him. That's what it means to fear the Lord, to stand in near dread of the magnitude of omnipotence and then be crippled in awe that he is your God. Nay, your father. This is what it means to fear the Lord. In the New Testament, we meet the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Revelation, he comes to his servant, John, and he tells him a wonder. He says, I hold the keys to death and Hades. He's overcome death itself. Is there a power more irrevocable on earth than death? What king has been able to withstand its might? 
What people has escaped its power? The Lord Jesus Christ comes to John and he says, I have the key to death and Hades in my hand. I was once dead. I am now alive, never to die again. At the cross, Christian, Christ has shown you that he will even wield death for your everlasting good. So is it any wonder that Paul hymns, if God is for us, who can be against us? For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Behold, the magnitude of power on display in the staggering reality of love for you. Beloved, Fear the Lord. These are the calls set forth this evening from the first commandment. Our God calls you to contemplate him. Our God calls you to remember him. Our God calls you to fear him. Consider this very week where he may afford you time to contemplate him. Either in a sleepless night or a quiet morning. Mm -hmm. Stir in your heart an expectation to consider him uniquely as once more he summons us to the public assembly on that day of tasting of the heavenly things. Place that moment by moment call unto an awareness of our God before you as you engage in all of your labors, not unto man, but unto your heavenly father. And know, beloved, beyond a shadow of a doubt, for it is assured to us in his word and written in the blood of Christ that you are secure in the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, such that you are beyond real harm from all earthly powers. And in the light of this, let us give thanks for the Lord Jesus Christ, who only ever set his father before him in all that he did and all that he said. Give thanks that even as the wickedness of man gave vent against our Lord, he did not shrink back in fear of their destructive power, in fear of their deranged railings, but instead he feared the Almighty, his father. And in doing this, beloved, he has ransomed your soul from all fear let us also give thanks that we have begun to taste the excellencies of contemplating our God. Does he not satisfy in a way that no earthly gift, nothing of this world satisfies? Give thanks that his word assures us that we stand before him, welcomed as children, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, assured that he provides us with everything necessary for life and godliness, such that we can yield our lives unto him as children looking to a father. And let us give thanks that his word assures us that by his almighty power, everything that befalls you, from sleepless nights to aches and pain 
to bewildering loss by his almighty power and wisdom and goodness. It works for your good, thus says the Lord. But we can also lament a little, can't we? In the light of this most blessed law, how little earnestness we bring to contemplating our God. How weak and frail we are when we're called to set our thoughts on the things that are above. If you're anything like me, you begin this endeavor perhaps with zeal and then find it difficult and then you're distracted two or three minutes later. Consider that often we do forget our God as we flirt with all manner of sin, failing to remember our true husband, our true Lord. And so in the light of the lament, we can also purpose to seek a greater portion of his grace, to strengthen, to enable, to satisfy, and to make faithful as he calls us to contemplate, remember, and fear him. And to ask for these things, believing that he delights to give this portion to his children. Thus says the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty God, sanctify us in your word. Your word is truth. Press it home upon our hearts. Grant to us that portion which only Christ can give. For we ask in his name, amen.